0: Jonah uh, chapter 3 verses 1 to 10 and that's on page 696 of the church bibles starting from verse 1 then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh now Nineveh was a very large city it took three days to go through it The second reading is from Luke chapter 11 on page 784 of the church Bible. And we'll be starting from verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Uh, it's great to see you. And can I add my welcome to to Matt? Uh, this is your first time here. It's great to have you with us. Um, we're at the sort of the, the, the seminal point of the Book of Jonah, the sort of the turning point in the book. Uh, if you like, uh, a restart for him. And so if this is your first time here, it's a great time uh, to, to join us. It would really help me if you could open your Bibles back to Jonah. Uh, if you shut your Bibles, it's page 698. Six, and um, if you could follow with me. And you also see a little outline in your service sheet, if that's helpful to you. Um, when I my uh, lead us in prayer as we make a start. Father God, we praise you for uh, the weather, <laughs> we praise you Lord that even though it's uh, completely unreliable, uh, we thank you that you are reliable, uh, you are dependable, you are trustworthy and I pray Lord that in this uh, comical account we're going to read now, we will nonetheless see you more clearly, uh, depend on you all the more and ab- above all see the Lord Jesus Christ and see his worth, his value, his love for us as a church, as individuals, as a city. Father, I pray that you would move us to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So recently, um, Hannah and I have been asking ourselves, how can we get our kids to obey us? And, and not just to obey us, <laughs> but actually want to obey us. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, Caleb... Yesterday and every day before that, thumped his brother uh, Levi. And what do we say? We say, "Caleb, say sorry to Levi." Yeah. No, is often the response. And we go, "Caleb, say sorry to Levi, or there'll be a consequence." At which point you can see the sort of the, the arithmetic, the mental gymnastics going on in his head, and, and and so so comes forth an apology, which is so laced with sarcasm and if accompanied by a face with utter vitriol, that it leaves no doubt that Caleb isn't really sorry. Sorry! Or something like that. You see, he has obeyed us, but he's not really obeyed us, has he? He has said sorry, but it's evident that he's not really sorry from the heart. And it's a nightmare which every parent, I'm sure, here can sort of appreciate and sort of recognise well, today I want to ask a similar question. How can God get us not just to obey, but actually want to obey? Uh, so when he calls us to repent of our sin, that, that we actually desire to do so. So that when he calls us to love and serve one another sacrificially, invite the students into our homes, we do so, but, but not begrudgingly, but, but joyfully. So that when he calls us to, to speak and witness to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ to our friends and our neighbours, those who don't know him, that we do that but but with joy in our hearts. How can God get us to obey so that we actually want to? Well, we find ourselves in Jonah chapter 3. And if you've been with us throughout this series so far, you'll see that this book is satire. It's, it's a comedy with a point, with a purpose. Jonah here is a fid- figure of, of ridicule. He's got all the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. He's got all the gear, but no idea. And so everyone uh, around the campfire, as this story would have been retold, uh, the Israelites listened to this well-worn story, everyone would have enjoyed laughing at Jonah, but, but the purpose in laughing at Jonah was for them to laugh at themselves, to see something of themselves in this hopeless prophet. It's, it's a carefully designed account, designed to make us stop and think. As we gaze into this black mirror, we're to see something of ourselves. As God calls us to do things, do we just do them or do we do them with joy? and with gratitude, because there's a huge difference, isn't there? So let's dive straight into the account. As usual across this series, we're going to tell the story, and at the end, draw some applications together. So if you can, hang in there to the end. We'll see how this might impact us. But to begin with, let's just enjoy the story. And it begins with an act of grace, God's undeserved love, an act of grace. Follow with me in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah... A second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, what do we know about Nineveh? Well, actually, an enormous amount. Um, archaeologists unearthed it pretty much 150 years ago and uncovered a vast array of things uh, which we've learnt about, most of which is in the British Museum, uh, which you can go and see. Uh, let me show you a map of Nineveh. Uh, we learn here that, that, at its longest point, it was um, the, the uh, sorry. We, at its longest point, the city of Nineveh was four miles long. That's huge, simply huge, by, by ancient standards. There's no other ancient city really that large. Its walls were a hundred feet tall. Nobody could scale them, and they were so wide that three chariots could ride alongside the walls. You know, so if you can imagine a chariot race going around the outside. Three chariots. Side by side around them. At this city, as you can see from the map, it had palaces, it had temples, it had a library, it had a botanical garden, it even had a zoo. And I was excited this week to learn it also had a football stadium. You see there, the Arsenal Gate.
0: <laughs>
1: I'm not sure if that's completely accurate. But do you see, like London today, like London today, this was a city of great wealth, of great power, of great culture. And yet you may remember back in chapter 1, what was God's assessment of the city in verse 2? It was its great wickedness. The Syrians were known to be utterly merciless in battle. Their, their war machine was constantly rolling and rolling, crushing smaller nations on and on and on. They were always at war. They were totally brutal in their methods of intimidation. They would routinely flay enemy captives and, and drape their skins over the city walls. They were blasphemous in their religion. Just listen to this inscription of archaeologists have dug up of a king of Nineveh around this period. He said this. This is a... Asher the II, if I've butchered that pronunciation, but here's what he said on, his, uh, on this tablet, which is in the British Museum. This is this. It says, he's the king of the universe, the unrivaled king, king of all four quarters of the earth, the sun god of the people, the chosen of the gods, the beloved of all the gods, the destructive weapon of the great gods. You can understand then why... why to Israel down south, the, the Assyrians were enemy number one. And yet, here in, in verse 2, God wants to send them a prophet. God wants to reveal himself to them. God wants them to, to hear this warning that they might turn back to him. This is not what they deserve. This is an act of divine grace. But these verses are also an act of grace to Jonah. Notice how God's command here in verse 2 is nearly identical to the one he received back in chapter 1. Jonah here is given a second chance. He's given a, a new beginning. He's given a fresh start, which is, again is not what he deserves to, to recount the plot so far, uh, when God said, go to Nineveh, Jonah ran in the exact opposite direction. He didn't want to go there. Why? Because he thought grace is for him. Grace is for his people, the Israelites. It's not for others. It's not for idolaters over there. It's not for the Ninevites over there. So he ran. He would rather die than see enemy number one be saved. Jonah is full of disobedience. And in that, he reflects his people, the Israelites, at this time. What we've seen over chapters one and two is God patiently working to win Jonah and the Israelites around to His way of thinking. In chapter one, we saw well Jonah saw that he's just as guilty as the pagan sailors. That in chapter 2, we, it was revealed how, how Jonah's in much of need of rescue as, as the pagans around him. There he was, down in the depths, when God reached and brought him back up. So around the campfire, as this story is retold, we can imagine the delight of the children. As they hear in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Finally, finally, it seems that Jonah stopped running. Finally, it seems that God has won Jonah to his side. But has, has he won his heart? That's the question, isn't it? Having been shown grace by God, is, is Jonah now willing to extend that grace to others? So we move from an act of grace, secondly, to what I suspect is an act of sabotage. Carry on with me, verse 3. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. or Literally, in the original language, Nineveh was very large to God. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into it, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I think a surface reading of these verses might lead us to think Jonah's doing exactly what God has told him to do. But if you stop and look at the details, I wonder if it reveals something more of Jonah's heart. To me, I think this is like an, a Caleb-style apology. Sorry! Uh, he appears to be proclaiming God's message but he does so in a way designed to sabotage the message. So notice his method. In verse 3, we're told it took three days to go through Nineveh. Or I think as a, another translation puts it, a visit to Nineveh was a three-day journey. Now, I don't think um, the three-daysness, uh, I don't think that refers to the size of Nineveh. I mean, you saw it's a big city, but not even London. Modern London is a three-day walk across. So I don't think it's talking about the size of the city in particular. Rather, I think it refers to the amount of time it would have taken Jonah to proclaim to the city. It was a three-day journey. So in the ancient Near East, and I, it's interesting to discover this, there's a well-documented protocol for ambassadors when they visited a foreign city. It's a three-day protocol. On day one, you would enter the city, you would go in and, and sort of settle in, on day two, you would go to the king and proclaim your message. And then on day three, you would leave, having done your task. So think of it. When, when Moses wanted to re- redeem the Israelites out of slavery, who did he go to? He went to Pharaoh, didn't he? The king, the guy who was in charge. Um, when um, Elijah and Elisha wanted to uh, reform Israel's religion, who did they go to? They went to Ahab. The king, because he was in charge and he was in the place to, to, to reform the place. So who should we expect Jonah to go to? We should expect him to go straight to the king. But no, he doesn't do that. Look at that detail in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. It seems that Jonah isn't too keen that this message reaches the king, the person in charge, the person who actually has the power to bring this repentance into effect. And so what does he do? On day one, he, he just hangs around perhaps with the, with the powerless commoners. We can imagine picking a, a random street corner and, and just sort of shouting on the corner there with a similar sort of effect as those people who do on Oxford Circus. Shouting as the, the, the passers-by go past. But it's not just, it's not just Jonah's method. Which is a bit suspect. I think his message is somewhat half-hearted, also. Verse 4, he proclaimed 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, compare this very brief clipped statement to the many eloquent words which he shared in, with us in that poem in chapter 2. We have here a mere five words in the Hebrew, which amount to pretty much a bare threat. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of repentance. There's no possibility of hope if repentance happens. It's just five words. He speaks as though Nineveh's destruction is, is a pretty much a done deal. It's already a given. Perhaps he hopes they'll be overturned, much like Sodom and Gomorrah earlier on in Genesis. It's, it's fair to say. Looking at Jonah's method and his message, it's fair to say Jonah doesn't quite live up to his name. We're told his father's name was, in chapter 1, the son of Amittai, which means son of faithfulness. And again, it, it's supposed to be funny. This is ridiculous. Because in both method and message, Jonah is anything but faithful. Here is an attempted act of sabotage. But remarkably... What follows is an act of repentance. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now this is, this is superb comic irony. Despite Jonah's very best efforts to fail, God ensures his message succeeds. So you can imagine his, his, his street corner proclamations somehow hit the common folk to the heart. And, and this message of, an, of a coming judgment, it, it goes viral amongst the people. If they had Twitter in those days, it would have gone viral on Twitter or TikTok or whatever it is the kids are using these days. I don't know. And eventually, in verse 6, the news finally reaches the ears of the king, who was the original target. And although it's the exact reverse of, of the original um, protocol, the king then gives the rubber stamp to the, to the repentance which the people have already shown. So look at verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king's decree here is, is simply extraordinary, isn't it? If, the, if this guy was used to styling himself, as we heard earlier, as the king of the universe, the beloved of the gods, well here he's actively denying his sovereignty, acknowledging his mortality. He exchanges his throne for the dust heap, his royal robes for sackcloth. Not only that, but he calls the whole city to join with him in this repentance. Can you imagine it? Nobody was to be excluded. It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're old or young. It doesn't even matter if you're human. The animals, it seems too, were to be included in this fast. Everyone was called to turn from their violence and towards God now again, you're back at the campfire, you're hearing this story as, this, as it's recounted to you. You're, you're one of those kids and it, this is comic, isn't it? It is almost absurd, the extent of this repentance. So you can imagine the kid after this, this chapter would have been told. Mum, what, what do you mean? So everyone repented, like mum, dad, gran, uncle Dave, Fido the dog, Bessie the, the, the cow. Everyone repented? This is ridiculous. And that's the point. It's a joke. But again, the real joke is on Israel. That's the black mirror here. Because not once in their history had they ever repented anything like this. Just compare the Ninevites' repentance with that of Jonah we saw last week where Jonah was all talk and no action, all the gear but no idea, here the Ninevites are radical and practical. Where Jonah never acknowledges his sin or his guilt before God, the Ninevites openly confess their sin and their evil and their violence to God. Whereas Jonah presumes God will rescue him because of his heroic eloquence in that prayer. Well, here the Ninevites ask, verse 9, who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion turn from his fierce anger that we will not perish. So we should see the irony here. We should see that, that the point being made, uh, Jonah prophesied that, that Nineveh would be overturned. And of course it was. It was overturned. But not in the way which he intended. This once wicked city with their wicked king Turned in repentance to the living Lord God. And this genuine act of repentance is then finally met with an act of compassion. Verse 10 When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So the fact that God showed Nineveh compassion here, frankly, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. My, my description of Nineveh's wickedness earlier on was, was not an exaggeration. They were blasphemous in their religion, violent in their deeds. They were a horrendous nation. And this city sort of encompassed all of that. And so along with Jonah we should be asking, well, how is this fair? How is it fair that God showed compassion on the guilty? How is it right that, that he, he, he relented from this disaster? How, surely this is just a gross miscarriage of justice from a nation renowned for their bloodshed. How is this right? And it's fair to say this is a tension which isn't really solved in the Old Testament. Only 800 years later would we see the solution to this, this big problem. See, so unlike the king of Nineveh, the Lord Jesus Christ really could claim those titles which we heard earlier on. He is the king of the universe. He is the unrivaled king. He is the beloved of the Lord. And yet what did he do? He left his throne and he entered our world. He saw the violence and the evil in and amongst us and what did he do? Well, you may remember the accounts from the crucifixion how Jesus' royal robe was torn off him and he was stripped naked and as he died upon the cross he was abandoned by God as we heard in our kids' slot earlier on, he he took God's anger, God's justice. And in the end, he went from the royal throne in heaven to the dust of death. Why would he do this? Why would he willingly do that? Well, as again, as we heard in the kids' slot earlier on, he was he was dying to satisfy God's justice. He was dying so that we who are guilty might be declared innocent. He was dying so that we who are spiritually dead in the dust, in the ashes, might be made alive by his resurrection power. How can a God show compassion to a city like Nineveh? Well, we could easily ask, how could God show compassion to me? How could God show compassion to you? It's because of his compassion in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to continue the story next week, but as, as we draw things together, I've just got three thoughts for us by way of application. Firstly, I, we must consider our repentance. I mentioned earlier that not once in Israel's history did they ever repent anything like this? So th- this chapter was intended and I think designed to embarrass those Israelites gathered around the campfire by laughing at Jonah. They're to laugh at themselves. The Ninevites exposed them and their own half-heartedness. Israel had so much of God's character to reveal to them, but what did they do? Whereas the Ninevites, what did they know about God? Well, they knew that much about God. And what did they do? And really that's the point of our second reading earlier on in the New Testament. We heard Jesus say this, The men of Nineveh will stand up at Judgment Day with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. I think it's probably fair to say, probably safe to say, all of us here know more than the people in Nineveh back then. All of us here know more. Just bear with me for a moment and sort of tot up what you know. You might say, all of us, we've grown up in countries where we've known stuff about God, where it's in our sort of our cultural understanding. There's an understanding about God and an ethical understanding about him. You may have grown up going to Sunday school as a child, I, mean, I don't know how many sermons you've heard from the Bible over your life. I don't know how many um, uh, Bible studies you've sat in. I, I, I don't know how many Christian books you've read or blog posts you've read. Think how much you know compared to how much the Ninevites know or knew. What do you think the Ninevites would say to us on Judgment Day? When they responded like that... To what was frankly some really awful preaching. Well, how are we going to respond? So you know, mediocre preaching. <laughs> <laughs> I think as we hold the Ninevites' response to their sin against ours, we need to ask: How radical are we? How radical is our repentance? I think there is a danger, isn't it, that we're a bit like Jonah. We're all, we're all talk. We're all theology when really we should be looking to the Ninevites for our example. What did they do? They believed God's word. They humbled themselves. They turned away from their sin, and they turned towards God. They believed God, they humbled themselves, turned from sin and towards God. And, that, and that's why we, we always begin our service with, with an act of confession. We humble ourselves each week, and you might think, oh, it's a bit of a downer each week to do this. Oh, to remember our sin. But we need to do that. We need to keep confessing, not, not just the sins um, which we've done, but also the good stuff we haven't done, the things we are called to do which we haven't done. So we need to ask ourselves, looking at the Ninevites, how are we repenting? Do we need to be more wholehearted, more radical? Or are we all talk like Jonah. And if you're here today and you're looking in on Christian things, well, there is an urgency for you to repent. The friend who invited you, the friend who brings you along, they need you to repent. They want you to repent. Because there is a judgment coming. There is a disaster coming. And you might think, well, I don't know enough yet. And that may be true. But consider the Ninevites. They didn't know everything. But they knew enough. They knew a judgment is coming. And they knew there is a way to be saved. I would say you know a lot more than that. Because you know the way to be saved through Jesus Christ. So all of us, will we consider our repentance? But secondly, let's consider God's relentance. Now, I don't think that's a word. Relentance, I, I looked it up. It should be a word, shouldn't it? Um, consider how God relents. Consider how patient he is, with Nineveh and then with us. Consider how good he is by sending them a prophet and, and us a saviour. Consider how good God is. That he would turn, he would relent from sending the disaster he has threatened. I think this should be an enormous encouragement to us, God's relentance, as, as we consider our witness and our outreach. I think maybe like me, you're kind of, Sometimes you ask the question, like, what, what is it that's stopping my workmates or my friends or my colleagues or my neighbours or my, my family? What is it that's stopping them from turning to Christ? And, and often, asking that question, often we, we, the answer comes back, it's me. I'm the problem here. I, I, I should be more persuasive my words. I should uh, be using more clever arguments in my apologetics. I, I should be making more opportunities with, with people. And then, maybe then, people would then turn and follow Jesus. So often I'm caught in thinking that in order for God to save someone, he needs me to be in best evangelistic shape. He needs me to know the answers to every hard question. He needs me to save people. If Jonah 3 teaches us anything, it's that God does not need you. He does not need you. He saved an entire pagan city through, frankly, an awful sermon. God's desire to save, God's desire to relent, overrules human weakness, human failure, human fragility. So it's okay to be weak. It's okay to have the character God has given you and the gifts God has given you. It's okay to be a, a jar of clay. And I think the sooner we realise that, probably the sooner we're going to get on our knees and pray. So I think all too often we trust in our own abilities and our own gifts and our own knowledge and think we're, we're the arbiter of salvation here. We're the ones who can save. And really, it's God who saves. Consider God's relentance. But thirdly and lastly, consider your responsibility. If you look back at verse 3, we saw how wicked Nineveh, in God's eyes, was exceedingly important to him. God looked at Nineveh and said, that city is important to me. I value that city. And if you thought that of Nineveh, with their evil and their bloodshed, what does he think of Balaam? Or London? Or the world at large? How does God feel about this city? This book we're looking at marks a development, a sort of a change in the mission of God's people. It, throughout most of the Old Testament, it, the plan is God's people be holy and the nations be drawn in like a magnet. It's like, and and like they'll be sucked in like a magnet. That's the Old Testament plan and mission. Drawn in. But when... Here, here in Jonah, really for the first time, we see God saying, go out to the nations. Go out and proclaim the message out there to the nations. And when Jesus comes along in the New Testament, that becomes the norm. Not, not come in, but go out. Jesus says, Matthew 28, go and make disciples. So if we as Christians, if we possess this urgent message of repentance, and we do, if we know about god's relentance and we do we have a responsibility to share that what are we doing with that message what are you doing with that message now i think there is a danger isn't there that we that, particularly as a preacher that we end up being motivating people by guilt and everyone feels very guilty about the fact we're not talking about Jesus enough. And we go, away feeling very guilty. I don't think that actually makes really good evangelists. That doesn't make people want to share the faith. We end up being like Caleb saying, sorry, sorry. You know, we end up doing it, but not really desiring to do it. There's a better way, isn't there? There's a far better motivator than guilt. And we see that in Jonah. Jonah preaches, but he doesn't clearly do it from the heart. There's a better motivation and that is to consider God's grace to us. When we remember that, like Jonah, we are recipients of grace, we all want to share that grace with others. God showed compassion to us in the same way he showed compassion to Jonah in order that we might share that compassion with the nations around us. We have a responsibility so let's not think of evangelism, sharing our faith, as something which we have to do. Let's think of it as something we get to do. Something which God delights to include us in. He doesn't need us, but he wants to include us. He wants to persuade us that have to have the same compassion for the nations which He has, to have the same view of Balaam that He has. And it's it's seeing that, seeing that love, seeing that compassion which will motivate us to, to want to share our lives with people who don't know Jesus, whether that's inviting him into our homes and, and having a meal with them, inviting them to um, Saturday circuits with Simon and Rosie, uh, going on the, 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 the Ballam cycle ride with, with Sean and others, um, inviting them to church week by week. We want to share our lives with people, but all than that, we want to share the good news with people and look for opportunities and pray for opportunities to speak Christ into their lives. It's something we don't have to do it's something we want to do because we've been shown such compassion. Now, of course, as I've said earlier, some of us show a natural aptitude to this and natural gifting towards this. And don't compare yourself to them, they're weird. You're normal. <laughs> some people are called, some of us here are, I think, called to be in full time gospel ministry. Some of us are here called to consider the mission field. We do have a responsibility to do that. But think with you and your character, your contacts, your people in your life, you have a responsibility. You know the need to repent. You've seen how God relents. Now live and speak Christ to them. Let's pray towards that end. Our oh, Father God, thank you for your mercy to us and forgive us for when we obey you but not with a full heart when we do what you say but not out of joy but out of guilt Father we, we ask that it would be your mercy your relenting which would just drive us to want to extend that same compassion to others we pray Father that seeing your grace we will want others to know that grace too